Hi everyone, welcome uh, Sahil to Network Capital. We've just finished reading your book and so many of our community members reached out, uh, shared their questions with us. So we are thrilled to have you on board. Awesome, thanks. I'm, that, that's, uh, that's awesome, glad to hear it. So Sahil, let's start with uh, your school days. You started um, building apps and got into designing fairly early on. What kind of a student were you and what uh, got you interested in technology? Yeah, I mean, grade-wise, probably not the best student. I was more interested and excited about working on side projects and things kind of outside of school, mostly things that, you know, made me money instead of gave me good grades or, or whatnot. So, yeah, I started, uh, I, was a, I, was a, I would say a decent student, like I would do, do well enough to pass, but then I would spend most of my free time like building new stuff, um, building apps, learning web design, uh, downloading, you know, one of the great things about the internet is you can, you don't, you don't have to like learn from your teachers. You can learn from teachers all over the world. Right. So I would download these videos from Stanford and, and, and learn that way. Um, and, you know, Khan Academy on YouTube and, and all these sorts of amazing resources that were just getting put on the internet, you know, for the first time in sort of 20, I guess 2007, 2008, something like that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I started. And, 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 I, I don't know exactly like kind of what drove my initial interest in like entrepreneurship or technology or design or any of these sorts of things. Um, but I think it was just, I don't know, just like eventually you spend enough time on the internet as a kid, you start, you know, getting into different hobbies and interests like video games and you kind of just, I don't know, you, you find these people, right? You find like right. forums where people are discussing these sorts of things and they need websites for their gaming clan and like it just you know, now I can't imagine like everyone, you know, probably knows what websites and startups and, and stuff are. But back then that was kind of the first foray into it was just through my hobbies and interests that got me into freelance web design and app development and iOS when that came out and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, even in your book, you know, you, know, it's, you reference some of the courses that you took early on. I wonder whether your parents were supportive or not, as I understand they were both in the finance space and you guys were in Singapore, India, that kind of stuff. So talk to us about uh, what was, say, a dinner table conversation in the Lavinia household growing up. Yeah, I mean, they they were pretty, I mean, they were definitely worried about the fact that I was spending so much time staring at a computer screen, right? Which was kind of a common fear like 10, 15 years ago. Like, you know, there's no, you can't make a living staring at a computer sort of thing, right? Obviously not true. Like that's how most people probably earn their livings today. Um, but back then it was like less obvious. So my my mom was concerned that I was like spending all my time, like, you know, doing these things that were not going to lead to like a career, right. Or, or something like that. Um, but at the time I graduated high school, I was already making like a few thousand dollars a month or something, something like that. Um, right. so there was a clear kind of, you know, and sort of, even in those couple of years, like the iPhone has had really kind of grown quite a bit. And so I was no longer like the weird kid with a MacBook. I was like the cool kid with a MacBook, Right. Um, and yeah, so I, I mean, I, I probably had like a non-traditional upbringing in that way where my parents were like very accepting of me pursuing these interests and, uh, and, and not being beholden to a very specific traditional career path. Um, you know, I never, I certainly, they were worried, you know, when I left school to join Pinterest and things like this, like people were like, you know, they were like, what, like what's Pinterest like, but I don't know. I think you can like make a legitimate argument and rational argument. And my parents are pretty open-minded, I think in that way. So um, yeah, it worked out. Yeah. And your mom did a, a really long hackathon with you with many of our network capital community members participated and watched that. So clearly, you know, like now she's, um, you know, she's perhaps even more accepting. Um, does she really get them what you're trying to do today? Does she get the creator economy? Do people around you um, in your family, are they familiar with what you're doing now? Um, that's a good question. Um, I have no idea, to be honest. I don't really talk to my family that much about business and work and startups and venture capital and crypto. And I found that most people don't care about most of these, most of the things that I, I do kind of nine to five, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. So yeah, it's always a, it's always kind of a, 
I don't know. It's humbling to, you know, to, you know, cause I think if you spend a lot of time on like working or on Twitter or, or listening to podcasts or whatever, like you kind of think that like, oh yeah, obviously startups are the future and there's so, you know, all this technology and money to be made and investing opportunities and that, you know, you turn it off and you go outside and like, no one really cares about any of this. Right. Um, so yeah, you know, like I, I will get on my high horse and preach about like liquidity and like how we need to make it easier to invest in this and that. And like, and then, you know, if I do that at Thanksgiving, people are like, what are you talking about? Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it, you know, a friend actually stated it really well um, to me, which was basically the number one cryptocurrency is Bitcoin in terms of knowledge, like how many people are familiar with them. And the number two is Dogecoin. Like that is the number two most famous <laughs> cryptocurrency in the world. Like, and I, that blew my mind because like that would not be in my top 50 list, you know? Um, right. So I think just being aware that like, you know, the things that I care about and the things that the world cares about generally are, can be quite different um, and should be. I mean, that's, yeah. if you're, if you believe you're early, then definitionally like most people will not get what you're talking about or care about or, or what have you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Sahil, so you've had a, had an interesting career. I, the first time I think you were covered in, in an Indian newspaper about this wizard kid who's building cool apps. So I think there was some sort of a buzz around you about this interest in this quotient all around. But in Singapore, you actually managed to launch some sort of an, a pre-Uber version and you've always been at this cusp of uh, doing really interesting things. Um, is there a career plan taking you through all of this? Is there an inherent curiosity? Do you believe in career plans or you're just sort of following your passion and letting it take you wherever it, it does. Yeah, I mean, I did have a career plan. My career plan was to go to school. So I went to you know college in the US, went to USC for a semester, but my intention when I applied was to go there for you know full four years, get a degree, and then probably work at Google, where that was kind of like the pinnacle of you know engineering achievement or whatever. Work at Google for a bunch of years, then maybe work at like a mid-sized startup, work at a small startup, and then eventually start my own company. And that, that's really, I, th- I believe, I, I wish I could, I don't know, there's not like, I can't see, you know, I can't talk to myself. So I don't know really what I believe, but I think what I believe back then was that kind of trajectory where you start big and you slowly move smaller and smaller and smaller until you have your own company. So I knew at some point, I think that like, I wanted to have my own startup. I just felt like the experience I needed and like the permission I would need from certain gatekeepers, VCs, investors, schools, et cetera, would, would require this, this kind of funnel uh and then it just happened a lot faster you know than i thought it was going to happen right like i went from four years at usc to four months and then i went you know in terms of working at a startup or startups i went from like i don't know a decade to eight or nine months at pinterest and then i had my own company and raised money for it so i think it happened a lot faster but i think the the common point is a combination of one yeah i do i am pretty curious um, I like learning. I like making stuff. Um, that doesn't have to be, you know, it could be buildings. Like it doesn't have to be apps, but I think I was generally attracted to things in which I could manifest some level of creativity in the real world. Like that was pretty important. But then the other thing, and this is what got me out of thinking about all these other career paths is I didn't, I wanted a high level of freedom and autonomy. And that's what attracted me, I think, to the tech industry, because it's really, I believe the only industry, or at least the closest to this ideal of being able to effectively reach the top without having to get someone else um, saying, oh, this person deserves it, right? Like you can part- you can build something, you can ship something, you can learn all the skills you need. Um, you can build a business, you can start the, you know, start a company, you can be CEO, you can scale it, um, you can raise money now, all without needing the permission of establishment kind of gatekeepers. Um, and that was just really important to me. Like even in school, I thought it was weird that like teachers get to choose how smart you are effectively, what grade they get to give you and all these weird things. And I just detested that. Like, I love the SAT. I love this kind of objective thing that I can just do and no one can say I can or cannot do it. And, um, and I personally like stuff like that. And so I, I like capitalism. I like being able to sell a product to a market, you know, like, for example, like I would, I don't know, I would probably never get into law until I could practice law without needing to be certified as a lawyer. Like that's how I would, you know, I would need to wait for that to happen because it compromises too much on my value of autonomy and freedom, I think. So 
Um, I yeah. think that's something I only realized recently. In the beginning, it was just like, I want to do fun, cool stuff. And that was making iPhone apps. Um, and then that kind of turned into a much larger, more, you know, just like, for example, when I built that Uber pre-Uber, it was called Taxi Law app in Singapore. You know, I, I wasn't thinking of it like I can build, you know, this is a massive opportunity and we're going to like redefine the way people go from point A to point B. And it's a hundred billion dollar company. It was like, oh, I'm just going to build an app. Like I have a problem. It's annoying for me to call cabs. And so I'm going to build an app that you call a cab and track it on your phone. Like pretty simple, you know, charged $2.99, put on the app store, made, you know, a few thousand bucks, um, you know, got an interview in, on TV in Singapore or something like that. Right. Like that was all it, that was it. Um, at the time. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about like, Oh, this is like an amazing place to, to get really wealthy. It was like mostly about maximizing my freedom and, and getting to work on stuff that I enjoyed working on. Right. And this permissionless leverage, I think you talk about even today as creator economy, passion economy become more mainstream. I think this permissionless leverage that you reference right now uh, comes up in your writing, comes up in your tweets a lot. Um, is this something that was foundational to you even when you were thinking between or deciding between, say, Pinterest versus Gumroad? Is that even a decision? Because one was a really fast growing company. I think you were the first employee, the first technical employee. And the other was an idea that you had over the weekend. So talk to us about uh, that dilemma, if there was any. Yeah. I mean, the dilemma was that I had a good feeling that my Pinterest stock was going to be worth, at the time, probably tens of millions of dollars was kind of my expected value calculation. And so I knew that if I were going to leave to start my own company, that company would have to be, you know, have to have a shot at becoming incredibly valuable just as a sort of financial on a financial basis for the decision. But besides that, it was, you know, hard to compare, right? Because starting a business um, is just, and I really like optimized for learning. I love just learning stuff. I don't, I don't know, just fun. Uh, keeps me interesting. And starting a business is like learning on steroids, right? Like there's no way you can learn faster than being basically if you're, if you don't learn your business dies, right? Like that's the, the cost of not learning fast enough. Right. And so I think it was a great forcing function and frankly, even raising money, I think was a great forcing function to really take it seriously, learn everything possible, read a gazillion books, like do all the things that, you know, you, you know, you should do, but sometimes you kind of just need somebody like cracking the whip a little bit. And for me, the whip is like the free market, right? It's like raising money from people. It's shipping a product. It's being public on Twitter. Like there are many ways to get that, you know, that sort of accountability, which is the sort of the, the flip side of permissionless leverage, right? It's like, ultimately it's great that you, like people can just do stuff now. They don't need to get a job or get a degree or like do any move to a certain city. But the downside is you lack accountability. You lack discipline. You lack peers potentially, mm -hmm. You lack people who are able to like help you jettison, you know, kind of get you to the next level. Right. Um, so, so there are costs to kind of, you know, the kind of, there's a value to trust right, and permission, right? Like it's not trustless, permissionless is not the future for everything. Right. Um, so I think that's just an important reminder in this world that like there, for example, like the, the less you have to move to a city like San Francisco, the more value there might be in doing so because it will set you apart from everybody else. Wow, this person is so serious about what they're doing that they're going to move halfway around the world to try to make it happen, even if it only increases the chance to success by like 5% or 10%. That's how much they care, right? So I do think it's important that like, just because it is permissionless doesn't mean you should be, you know, not asking other people for permission and trying to kind of work your way up. However, however that may look like for certain people, you know, like the way you get to the top of what happened recently, Twitter, right. was an engineer who got a job at Twitter and worked at Twitter for 10 years and is now the CEO of Twitter, you know, $50 billion company or something like that. Right. Indian born and raised, like pretty cool. Um, but very much like not permissionless leverage, right. Like that path was right. It's a lot of leverage, certainly being the CEO of Twitter, but very permissioned, Right. Uh, so that can also be a path that I think works very well for certain people. And, and I think, honestly, I think a lot of it just comes down to like, what do you want? You know, right. Like, there are many people who look away and they're like, that's stupid. Like, I don't know why you would want to do this. Um, you know, like you should be able to turn off your computer at 5 p.m. and like stop thinking about work. Like, but, you know, I, I don't know. I, I am who I am. Right. So I got it. Uh, you you were 19 year old. You had raised money from some of the top investors, so clearly they believed in you. They valued your credentials um, the way you brought them. 
Um, were you more disciplined as a 19-year-old or are you more disciplined today? You're still running Gumroad. It's the same company, but in a very different mode. Yeah. I mean, I would say I'm less disciplined. I mean, I don't know. I, th- I think it depends. I think it's a really, it's really hard to kind of say like on a holistic level, am I more disciplined or not? Right. Like about certain things, I think back then I was very disciplined about like one of the best things about starting a company and raising money and hiring people is that you basically only have one priority in your entire life, which is making your business successful, which obviously has its cons. But one of the nice things about it is you are very disciplined, right? Because there's not a lot of, it's, it's hard to pretend that you're productive. Like you either are or you aren't. And I remember those days where I would literally work on Gumroad, like basically five days a week, at least 12 hours a day. And then Saturdays I would read and or I would go to the gym, I guess, like two or three times a week. And then besides that, I would just basically work and eat and sleep. And then I would uh, take a day off on Sundays to just, do no technology. And then on Saturdays, I would read, I would either work and read, basically read books. That's, that's all I would do. And I just felt very good because it was like, I was basically wasting no time. I was not drinking alcohol. I wasn't doing anything else. I was just doing almost like hundred percent of my time was being productive in some capacity. So in a sense, I was very disciplined, but in another sense, I wasn't because it wasn't my own discipline. It was just being enforced by the external market. I think I'm a much more self-disciplined person today where I have a much more, I, I don't motivate myself with like external numbers and things as much as I used to. Um, so I might be doing less in, in a broad sense, but I, I feel more content. I feel like I want to do these sorts of things. Um, and so there's kind of like, I think there was like an impatient discipline that I had before. And now I have more of a patient discipline. Um, so it's kind of a different kind of discipline, but I think I've always been relatively disciplined, like ever since I was a kid, like if I cared about something, I was you know pretty good at, at, at sort of making my way toward it. Like I, I generally don't really make excuses, I think, for myself. Um, so yeah, yeah. And uh, when Gumroad started, it was basically a weekend project that you hacked the minimum viable product to, uh, together. It was ready to ship. What were some moments from the early days that you really thought you had a business? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> like, I mean, I've had moments in the non-early days that are like, do I have a business? Right? Like, there's. That question is a existential question that I think many entrepreneurs have about their business for many years. Like, I, th- I think it can take quite a while to get to a place where you're like, okay, yeah, this has its own legs, its own momentum, its own inertia. And I'm no longer like the one pushing it up a hill. Right. Um, I think that that can take a long time. Um, but in the early days, I had a feeling that it had potential. Like, I think that's like the important thing is having some level of conviction that there's a percentage chance that this thing works, right? Like, I don't think you need to be 100% convinced or even 50% convinced, but I, I think you should be spending your time on things that are like 30% likely to happen or 10%, 20%, something like that, like to happen. I think that's important. I think it's important to try many things, have a kind of portfolio of bets and, you know, the things that generally, I think, produce a lot of value for the world, value for, the, for people who build it in terms of financial capital generally have high risk, right? High risk, high reward, right? So I think it's, if, 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 you know, it's kind of like if you had like, you know, high risk or a kind of high reward, like high expected value, low risk, easy, like, you know, or fast or whatever, like pick two, that sort of thing, right? Like you can't have all three at the same time. Um, so yeah, that's, 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 uh, it took me a little while, but in the beginning I, I had an inkling that there was something here. And the reason is I, I felt like, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of democratization. I'm a big fan of like making things easier for a group of people or more possible for a group of people who normally didn't have access to before. Just like the app store made it more possible for me to be a developer as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old kid that like, you know, would not have been possible in 20, uh, 2005 or something like that, right? Like even with the internet and stuff, like it just wouldn't, really the iPhone was like the first time that someone like me, I think could participate in this online economy in the way that I did. And Gumroad felt like a similar unlock for a different kind of people like creators, which we now call them, right? Like all these people can now create and sell and monetize without having to think about all the other stuff, just like Apple allowed me to do. And so that's really what got me, I think, to double down on it, unlike all my other side project ideas um, and and really, you know, tweet like, oh, this is a billion dollar company in the making, that sort of thing. Um, is because I felt like that supply expansion, that unlock, that democratization, it was just kind of a story that I'd seen play out many times with Airbnb, with Uber, with Pinterest, with, with all sorts of different companies that I had been tracking at the time. And Gumroad felt similar in, in, that, in that way. 
in many ways yeah. it was ways it wasn't but um i think the trend over, overall the trend lines got me really excited about yeah. sort of where you know the right place right time sort of thesis yeah uh, but there came a time in Gumroad when you had to take really difficult decisions. You've talked about it uh, in a podcast I heard on Farnham Street, of course, in your book, The Minimalist Entrepreneur, and in some of your blogs. Um, how did you take those decisions? How did you prepare for taking those decisions? What was the night like before you had to fire a bunch of your staff? Yeah, I mean, I I think I'm always a very, I've always been quite transparent, at least with the people that are kind of stakeholders in the decision or will be affected by the decision. So none of these decisions were kind of atomic in the sense that like, you know, at 943, no one knew. And then at 944, everybody knew everything, right? Like I, I for example, with the layoffs in January, so this is like 11 months, 10 months before the layoffs, I said, hey, we're going to we might be doing a round of layoffs in nine months. Like we're going to have a hard time raising this round of funding. We're going to try, but just so you know, it's going to be hard. And, you know, I'm going to be very clear with what the numbers we need to hit to make it happen for us. And I think, I really believe that if we hit these numbers, we will be able to raise money and we'll, you know, be back on the journey that we are on. We would have, you know, to the outside world, we would have never left. Um, But if we don't hit these numbers, and we will know within three months, six months, nine months, certainly if we do or not, then, you know, the decision is we're going to do a run of layoffs. It's going to be aggressive because we need to get to profitable and survive so that we can continue to serve our creators, our customers. And that was January. And then the layoffs, I think were October 31st or something, something like that, um, that time frame ish. Um, and so it was, you know, basically when the day it happened, it was kind of like, okay, you know, the thing that I said nine months ago is happening now you know, and it was like very, I wouldn't say easy because those things are never easy, but it was like, it wasn't as emotional. It wasn't, you know, most people, I think at that point had already processed a lot of what was going to happen. It was getting sort of, it was kind of almost like a spectrum. Like, you know, in the beginning it was like, okay, this is like 10, 20% chance we're going to have to do layoffs or 40% or 50%. I don't know where people stood, but my guess, my personal thing would have been probably like 30% or something like that. I was really, I really did have my conviction that we were going to be able to change. Otherwise I would have just done the layoffs then or whatever. Um, and, and then basically every month when we, our numbers weren't getting there, it was like, okay, now the chance of this happening, 40%, 50%, and by the, you know, pretty soon, you know, and everyone had a similar, I would assume journey to that. And so it made it a lot easier. It made it way easier to kind of the, the sort of to deal with it. It wasn't the same fight or flight response going off in my brain because so much of the hard work of the decision, communicating it, et cetera, like had already happened previously, right? Um, and right. I, I do that all the time. Like I always try to like split up my decision. Even when I did the fundraise, for example, for Gumroad, I actually split it up into two different pieces, which is I published no meetings, no deadlines, no full-time employees, which was in, I think, January or February. And then I did the fundraise in March. And the reason I did that was because I wanted like basically bundle this announcement. I didn't want to say, hey, by the way, Gumroad is appearing out of the woodwork and like we have all this cool stuff and you can invest and we work in this way and blah, 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 like all these things. Instead, I wanted to write a piece that was like all the, hey, this is the update on Gumroad. You haven't heard a lot about it for a year or two. This is what we've been up to during COVID and hiring and all these sorts of things. And we're going to be raising money soon. But just so you know, this is kind of what Gumroad is today. And then when the raising money happens, it's like everyone has already kind of trained themselves to do the research, to read about Gumroad. And then the raising money is just the simple switch, just like the layoffs were kind of like the simple switch, right? So I try to find opportunities to do things like that. But I think it takes a level of transparency that many people do not feel comfortable with. Like most people, most CEOs, I think would not be like telling their entire company that they may lay them all off in like nine months, right? So it takes a level of discipline, takes a level of accountability, that um, I think pays off like in spades, but um, but it certainly, you know, has its own pros and cons associated with it, I think. Yeah. Do you have any regrets associated with how you operated at that time? Um, I mean, very tactical ones. I don't think there were regrets because I don't, I'm very glad to be where I am today. So I wouldn't change anything. Like I literally wouldn't change anything about what happened. Um, Cause I do think it was like the best possible outcome for Gumroad eventually. Um, but certainly tactically, like in the moment, I think there, there are certain first time founder mistakes that I, I made. Like, for example, I didn't pay enough attention to how important compounding month over month growth was. 
I thought, oh, every couple months, you know, we have a down month or every quarter we have like one down month, but overall it's up and to the right. Like I didn't realize like how much that hurts the growth of a business. Like if you're not consistently compounding every single month, like you should really be measuring yourself by like your worst month. If you're raising venture funding, like your worst month is kind of, you know, indicative of like the average really more because everything else is being pushed up by like manual work, right? Like it's not easy uh, to build a business from, from zero. Um, and so I think just being more sort of holding myself more accountable to, to that number, being disciplined about hiring in the sense that like, if we weren't hitting that, then we would freeze hiring and really make sure that the whole team knew that we were not where we needed to be to continue on this path. Um, stuff like that is mostly where I would say my mistakes were. Um, but again, like glad that we, you know, ultimately I think that what we realized that is that Gumroad was not meant to be a multi-billion dollar company. And I don't think any of these micro changes would have made that happen when it wouldn't have, or, you know, like, I think the sort of the result turned out to be quite inevitable, which was when we were very early to the creator economy. I think our approach was interesting, but flawed in many fundamental ways uh, that we're now correcting um, and have the opportunity to correct. And we'll see if they pan out for us. Um, but yeah, we were just, you know, it, it turned out to be like right place, wrong timing or something like that. Right. Like we were probably two to three years ahead of Patreon, Substack, Teachable, and some of these other businesses that people would consider traditionally more successful, there's certainly government has, has carved out, out, out its own kind of niche and has done quite well, so. Yeah. Um, one of your most popular essays online is, uh, you know, my failure to build um, a multi-billion dollar business. It's there in your book as well. But you wrote it after some time. You took some time to process this, this shift uh, in the company. Then you, I think, moved away from Silicon Valley do you want to talk a bit about uh, how you created that um, space shift or time shift before getting back to writing and building? Yeah, so I've always been pretty transparent about Gumroad uh, and everything really. Um, sort of from zero to 2015, which is when the layoffs happened. And that's kind of when I went AWOL and kind of just didn't really have much to say, to be honest. Um, like I wasn't learning as much. I wasn't, you know, uh, growing as much, I didn't have much to report on, I guess. And so I kind of went silent on social media and like uh, sort of from 2015 to, I think in 2018, I published an article called From Bubble to Bubble, which was kind of an update on my life, which was basically I moved from San Francisco to Provo, Utah. Um, and the reason I did that is because I didn't need to live in San Francisco anymore. Uh, and it was very expensive and everyone there was talking about startups and then Trump won the election, which was kind of like the the nail in the coffin for me, which was like San Francisco just became like even worse of a place to live. Cause like there was literally only one topic of conversation for many months and it was quite boring and I wasn't learning anything. And so I pieced out, moved to Provo, Utah. The reason I moved to Provo, Utah is because I wanted to take a science fiction and fantasy writing class by this author that I love, Brandon Sanderson. And it was very conservative and I felt like I would be able to learn a lot more than I was learning in San Francisco. And the sort of side effect, side benefit of doing that was I just, I got, as you mentioned, kind of like the real space and distance from startup land from like all of these things that I had been thinking about for such a long period of time. And, and, and a set of metrics that I was judging myself against. Um, and in Provo, Utah, like no one cares about valuation or a number of employees or who you've raised money from, or, you know, building billion dollar companies or, or whatnot. Right. And so it was just healthy, you know, in the sense that like, you know, I was, thinking about it because other people were asking me about it. Right. But all of a sudden, if you live in a place and no one asks you these kinds of questions, they ask you other questions, then you just inevitably start thinking about the answers to these other questions. Right. Like if the default question that people asked you was like, are you hungry? You know, you would orient your, your brain would kind of like re rewire itself a little bit. Right. Or are you warm or are you happy or, you know, what do you do for work? Right. Like these different kinds of questions that people, you know, are you married? Do you go to church? Like, depending on where you live, everyone has kind of different questions that reflect kind of like culture priorities of the, of where, wherever you happen to be. Um, and so, yeah, it was just kind of like a one or two year process of just like not being an SF. And like, honestly, that's, I didn't have to do much beyond that, you know, because just being in a different place with different people, different set of priorities, just over time, just like your brain sort of recycles, uh, it kind yeah. of like, like memory, uh, I ram memory, right? Like, you kind of just like get rid of the stuff that you don't actually haven't referenced in a long period of time to save space for new memory. And I think a similar thing happens in your brain. Yeah. 
I just had a trivial point. I just want to make sure I got it right. You said something about conservative and learning and uh, and Trump. So you just meant that changing context where people are perhaps not talking about politics give you a different view to look at life. Is that what you meant? Yeah. Or I mean, even they would talk about politics, right? But just a different perspective than the one I already had, right? Like ultimately learning is, I would think, basically being exposed to a view that you don't have, right? Because definitionally, if you had the view already, then you're not, you wouldn't be learning anything from being exposed to the view, right? I think, right? Um, maybe there's some nuance there, but generally I think that's true, at least on like big, big learnings, right? Maybe incremental learnings, but um, yeah, and I felt like just living in a place that like, you know, for example, like Hillary won 90% of the vote in 2016 in San Francisco, I voted for Hillary. Um, in Provo, she won, I think something like 13% of the vote or 14% of the vote, like literally like almost flipped, right? Um, she got, th- she got third place, like the only county in America. And so I, yeah, I was just learning a lot, you know, like when you hang out in a place like that, you basically disagree with almost everybody you meet on some issue that's relatively prominent, um, lots of learning to be had i think when that when that's true got it but you were still building uh gum road along the side because the business was operational there were customers who seemed to be happy they were using it were you a one-person company donning it all yeah totally yeah so in 2016 or so i shrunk down to one person and basically stayed one person for at least a couple years and then started hiring people back as hourly freelance kind of contractor type folks people in India and then growing now we have people in 17 different countries I would give it like background process right where basically I was running Gumroad but it wasn't really visible I would just kind of like go home do it you know do what needed to be done and then move on with my life check my phone respond to some slack messages move on with my life right and that's kind of what informs the way that I run Gumroad today which is async no meetings no deadlines etc a very asynchronous, very kind of like low in terms of uh, a demand on my specific time blocks, right? I obviously have to put in time, but I can set kind of set, I can put in the time when it makes sense for me versus like dictated by sort of traditional calendars, et cetera. Yeah. Um, Let's talk a bit about uh, your writing process for the book and just generally. Um, You tend to write long form pieces online, but the chapters in the book are fairly short, very actionable. Uh, was there a particular difference in the way you write blogs and the writing process of the book? And, um, if you could walk us through that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of similarities, a couple differences. Um, ultimately, you know, it's funny because the, the the chapters of the book are a lot longer than each than the blog posts, right? The blog posts are roughly two two to three thousand words. Um, is gen- you know, I think in words generally. Um, so the a blog post is two to three thousand words, and then a uh, a book chapter is like six thousand, seven thousand words. So like almost more than double, right? More than double the uh, the uh, um, the sorry, um, more than double the uh, the length. But you know, in the context, it's very different, right? Because in a with a blog post, like two, a three thousand word blog post is considered very long right? Because I don't know, people click on Twitter and they skim it and they move on with their life or they, they want a very specific thing. Out of it. And so in that context, I think my blogs feel very long, like they're very narrative driven. You know, they make a lot of points. There's a lot of subsections. It's not like, here's the one thing, you know, one takeaway and you can leave and move on with your life. Right. Um, in the book, the chapter, it's, it's similar in the way that it's still very narrative. I would say the, di- the big difference is with the book, one, I, I needed to be the end all be all with the blog posts. They're really just like tip of the iceberg, right? My, it's kind of like an appetizer where like my goal is just to kind of make a set of high level points and not really do kind of like an MBA case study, right? Like this is right. This is wrong. This is the, you know, this is the approach. This is what the future looks like. This is some numbers, graphs, statistics, blah, blah, blah. Like all that stuff. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense in a book format. Um, because it's kind of the destination versus I think I want the blog post to be more of just like a jumping off point. Um, and, and then the, the other thing with the book is that, yeah, besides the fact that it has all this, this other data and all these other things is I wanted it to feel like a book. I think blog posts, I write very much for my own voice. Um, with the book, I think the book is meant for a different kind of audience, people who like to read books, which is like different generally than people who like to read blog posts. And so I wanted to write a book that felt like a book. It wasn't too bougie and too fancy and, uh, you know, but I did want it to feel like a book, um, you know, with, for example, like the, one of the big differences, one of the things I really struggled with 
with the book is that I don't use any examples in my blog posts. Like I literally just say, this is my experience. My goal is not to convince you with a bunch of examples. All I'm trying to do is like, I'm not trying to create a movement of narrative, a beat or anything, right? All I'm doing is saying, Hey, this is what happened. This is what I learned, you know, take it or leave it. Right. With the book, it's more like, I want you to believe what I'm saying. And so I need examples. I need case studies. I need examples outside of my own life. This is not just going to be 52,000 words of me ranting about Gumroad. I want every chapter to have at least one core example of somebody else's life. Um, and yeah, it, that was, that was like really hard for me, right? Like I, if I could have written the book that I wanted to write uh, without any editorial oversight, um, it would probably would have been a worse book, but it probably would have been like nine of my two to 3000 word blog posts, right? It would have been a lot shorter. It would have had no examples. It would have just been like, this is what I think you should do. And 2000 words on sales, 3000 words on marketing, like that's it, right? And the marketing chapter is actually the closest to this because it has almost no examples. It is the one that is most just written in my pure voice um, because that's a lot of what people know me for. Like, like I spend most of my time on government now thinking about kind of the marketing side of things, right? Um, just cause government is like a little older. Um, and so, yeah, it just, that's, that's some of what I, you know, ultimately the book is like a group project and my blog posts are kind of like a solo project, right? So like just slightly different, um, you know, kind of uh, perspective and kind of voice, I think, associated with that. Gotcha. Sahil, did, um, did the publisher approach you with the book or did you pitch, pitch it to them? And did you ever consider just publishing the book directly on Gumroad? Because that way you get to keep all your profits. Yeah. I mean, that would certainly be nice, but the, you know, the truth is like people mostly buy books on Amazon. So it made a lot of sense, I think for this to be on the places people are usually buying books, um, Amazon, Barnes Noble, whatever the other places are and work with publishers in each of the local regions to, to kind of distribute the, the books. Um, I felt was important, certainly not the best way to make money on the book, but um, in terms of, I think, reach and getting it in front of the right kind of people who would benefit from reading the book, I think it was the right choice. Mm -hmm. And the, and the publisher approached me. So Penguin Random House, they read, or Mary's son specifically, um, an editor at Penguin Random House read, reflecting on my failure to build a billion dollar company, like a week, I think, after it had come out and sent me an email saying, hey, this is great. You know, if, if you have more where this came from, like, let's talk. And I didn't at the time. So I basically said no. Um, but then as I started talking to people, basically people were like, do you have a chance to write a book? Um, very few people get this chance. Like, why not? You know? And so I spent six months kind of talking about it and then put, putting together a proposal and getting an agent and, and all that kind of stuff before I eventually signed the book deal in December. So it took like seven months or 11 months uh, to really say, okay, yes, I'm doing this um, and committing to it. And then obviously COVID happened like three months later. So I don't know if I would have said yes, honestly, if COVID, if I, you know, like just the timing was, was kind of perfect for me to say yes to the book. And then it was, it was kind of, it was a little trickier to kind of manage all the things that ended up happening in 2020, but luck, I was glad I said yes, because, you know, it, it got, you know, it got, it, it made me do all those things. Like I had no choice. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I've always been curious about your day. So you, invest, uh, you write, you tweet, you answer emails, which you call is your business model. Then you're building gum road and then there's writing as well. Can you walk us through a day in your life or a week in your life when you were writing this book and doing all the other things that you do? Yeah. So I normally, the way that I structure my days is I do all the stuff that I don't like doing first. And then I do all the fun stuff that I like doing later. So for example, like most of the time I try to do all my busy work from eight to 10 AM. Uh, so that's like writing, you know, writing email, uh, responding to emails, getting, basically getting to inbox zero and all the things that you mentioned, it's kind of like my business model is just answering emails. That's kind of all I do. Um, so I try to do that like a couple hours a day get to inbox zero on every sort of platform. And then I do deep work, whether that may be writing, um, editing, uh, you know, designing, coding, whatever that may, you know, painting for your drawing, whatever that may look like, um, different kind of every day. Um, the caveat is when I'm writing the book, that becomes the hardest thing that I'm doing. So that goes right to the front. So basically when I was writing the book, I would be basically writing for like nine to noon, like three hours a day, um, trying to, get two to 3000 words down or at least a thousand words down. And then I would basically just be burnt out 
and like need to do other boring stuff through the rest of the day. Like writing is just exhausting for me. Um, yeah, that's how I structure it is generally like now, nowadays when I don't have the book, I try to do all my work from like eight to 10 AM and then I'm done with all my need to do work. And then it's just doing fun stuff from like noon till, you know, kind of four, four forty-five when I pick up my wife from work generally. Gotcha. I know you've taken up painting in the pandemic. What else constitutes fun work? Um, yeah, drawing and painting, writing, reading, traveling, eating, um, just doing nothing sometimes, you know, <laughs> listening to music, catching up on, like on podcasts, um, things of that nature, um, but nothing too crazy. I mean, you know, just the stuff that cleaning the house, you know, like doing the dishes, like putting stuff away, right? Like just the stuff that everyone needs to do, does do. Um, I just, I'm lucky that I get to do that and take breaks and start doing that kind of stuff in between my other tasks, like during the day. So I don't have to do them like nights and weekends, like may maybe many other people have to do. Right. Um, so I, in your in investor memo, or like basically the rolling fund that you run, you've uh, talked about why people should invest with you or in you. And one of the things that keeps coming up is the brand that you built for yourself. Um, how do you think that brand has come about and has that brand growth been sudden or did you always have it when you, since you started? Yeah. I mean, to a degree, I think I always had it. I've noticed this with many of these kind of recent Twitter personality type people like Naval or Justin Khan or me or, or whomever. What I've noticed is that all of these people have been doing it for a long time. Like, it, it's not new, right? It's the, what's new is that like the sort of level of engagement and like the number of people who are on the other side reading all these thoughts. But like, I've been reading Naval's blog since I got started in tech in 2008, you know? Um, Justin Kahn like literally live streamed his life for 24 hours seven. Like that's how they launched Ustream, you know, which is now kind of turned into Twitch, uh, right? Like it's, so it's, it's, I would say something that, you know, I've been doing for a long time definitely in terms of the engagement and the audience growth, like it, it like 90% of it has happened in the last like two years, but even, you know, before the last two years, like when I published reflecting on my failure to build a billion dollar company, like most people probably didn't know who I was just like today. Most people don't know who I am, but everyone, in, you know, most people in tech did, right. Uh, most people who would invest in tech and, you know, lived in San Francisco Bay area from 2011 to 2015, like I did, like probably knew who I was. Um, and that was actually a really fun thing is like, it was kind of like, for many people, it was like, oh, wow, this is like a whole new story I've never heard of before. But for many other people, it was like, wow, I knew the first four years of your life, of your career, but I'd like forgot you existed for another two, three years. And now I realized like, oh, you were actually like, you were actually doing a bunch of crazy cool stuff. Uh, I remember Naval like telling me this. He's like, yeah, I kind of thought you just disappeared off the face of the planet. I'd never hear from you again. And then you popped up with this like awesome piece of writing, you know, um, and it, you know, it turns out you were doing stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, felt, felt great to hear. Um, but it's always been something that I do. And I think brand is just a, you know, a result of, of just doing things publicly, right? Like doing stuff is number one. I think many people focus on like trying to build an audience, but it's like, well, if you haven't done anything, that's kind of the nucleus of your audience. Like you need something, mm -hmm. like even today, like most of my audience, I would say on Twitter, like, is a function of writing, reflecting on my failure to build a million dollar company, which is a function of building Gumroad, right? Without building Gumroad, I don't think my Twitter would be anywhere what it is today. I don't think it would be nearly as compelling. The words, I think I would, uh, you know, and partly it's because I wouldn't even be able to have the words because my experiences are reflected in what I say. But two, I think people want skin in the game. They want to follow people who have not only said smart things, but have also been through hard, difficult periods of their life. Right. Um, we don't like people who are just born rich and successful and get more rich and more successful. We want to follow people who had a hard time of it and are now doing really well because, you know, we, I think we want stories that we believe fit our own stories, which are less sexy and idealized, right. Than, than, than Hollywood may make it seem. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, but it really just doing stuff, building stuff, failing a lot, writing about it. Writing is a superpower. Most people don't write, you know. Um, I probably was not the first founder to have the experiences that I had, but I was the first founder to write about it really well, which is why a million people read it, right? Um, and so I do think I'm pretty good at writing and 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 sort of finding the 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 sort of headline that is going to reflect without being too clickbaity, 
um, reflect like what's in the piece really well and be interesting and counterintuitive, not just write the thing that everyone else is writing or thinking, but write like my own take on it. Um, and I think I, I just really work like, uh, and maybe this is something people don't really get, but I, I work on my English. Like I really care about mastering the English language. Like I, I think I'm a novice at the English language. I'm probably better than most, but I think I'm very early in my ability to use the English language um, to get what I want. I think it's like an incredibly powerful tool. Um, and that's like my number one goal is to become a better writer, uh, specifically in, in English. Um, Cause obviously I can't, I can't write in any other language. So um, yeah, I really, really focus on that. And I think my brand gets farther because of it, because it has a better vehicle, right? Like, the core underlying ideas have to be good, but then you have to write them in a way that many, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, for example, is a phenomenal writer, right? Um, I would say his ideas aren't that even that interesting, but what he does is he takes a really simple idea and then he just writes about it in a very, very compelling way that many millions of people want to read, right? So figuring out like, how do I do that for startups and investing and all these sorts of things is a lot of what I, what I think about. And the middle of entrepreneur is kind of like my first big attempt at trying to make it happen, but it's my first attempt of many, many, many attempts, I, I hope. Yeah, I've always thought that you were a clear writer, both in your tweets and of course, long form essays. I wonder if you became a better writer or did you have this as a natural gift? Yeah, I mean, I worry that saying it's a gift is going to basically provide an excuse for people, right? Not to work on their skill because it allows for people to basically say, oh, well, I don't have that gift. So therefore I'm not going to be an amazing writer. So I'm not going to try, right? Like, I think that's very risky. I say the best thing to do is like literally like go to archive.org, find my blog from 2008 and read, like you can read my words from like 12 years ago and they were okay. I mean, there were, you know, there weren't any major typos in it or something like that. Um, but they're, they're definitely weren't that good. Um, there's nothing that interesting or notable about them. Um, but I wrote, I published, I put it on Hacker News, I got some positive feedback and then I kept getting better and better and better. Um, I still think even today, like I publish, I'll write something. Uh, no, no one has like, no one listening has ever read anything that I've written, like nobody. The only thing that you've read, um, except maybe my tweets, I guess, but like really what you've, even those things are edited, right? Like I don't, write them and then hit publish. Like I write them and then I sit on them and I think about them. And if in the case of an essay or certainly a book, I send them to hundreds of people, at least dozens of people, but often hundreds literally of people, any of the essays that you've read, hundreds of people have read. And then they give me feedback and I make it better and better and better and better. And it can take weeks, honestly, like reflecting on my failure to build a billion dollar company. I wrote uh, the first draft one day in December, I think it was a Saturday, six or seven hours. And then it took I published in February. So it took at least four weeks, um, I think six weeks to like actually publish because it took so many more cycles. Um, and that those edit cycles kind of go into my brain for the next first draft, but then I still do the same thing. And so I'm constantly writing and getting feedback from people and writing and getting feedback and doing it over and over again. And, it, and that's what I do like on a daily basis. That's probably what I do more than anything else is write and then get feedback on the writing and edit and do it again and again and again um yeah so that is my so book nominee. all the skills i have i think writing is my core above engineering above design i think writing is my fundamental core skill your superpower in a way that's great we have a writing fellowship running on network capital right now we tell the people um something very similar about scaling yourself through the power of words um Sahil, tell us, uh, you know, when you were, you know, when you were writing, publishing, you normally you have an editor, but who are these tens or hundreds of people that you seek feedback from? Are they friends or your tribe of mentors or uh, just people who have mastered the English language? Yeah, so I have a writing group, uh, with like three or four people that we share writing amongst each other. Um, but honestly, it's just random. Like, it's literally, I'll just tweet like, hey, I'm writing a piece on how we work at Gumroad. Does anyone have any questions? Does anyone want to read a first draft? Um, actually, what I do is I split it up uh, into two. So what I do is the first time I say, hey, I'm thinking about writing a piece about how we work at Gumroad. Does anyone have any questions? Or like, is there anything you really would want answered? And then I get like 50 or 100 you know, replies or DMs or, or what, whatnot. 
And I write the piece based off of those questions. Like they kind of serve as my guide to make sure that I'm writing something that is actually helpful to people. Uh, and then I DM the first draft to every single one of those people individually. And so it could be 50, it could be hundred people. And I also separately tweet out, Hey, I wrote a first draft. Does anyone want to give me feedback? And I do this every time where like, some people are surprised, like you have enough people in your network. Like, why are you going to internet strangers to like help you on? But like, the truth is like, I, that the, those are the people reading it. Right. So like, ultimately I want people who have never, you know, like aren't professional writers, like, but are really much more like the audience um, that I'm writing for to like, give me feedback. These people might not know, you know, that much about Gumroad or they might know everything about Gumroad. Like they, I want people who are l- much less familiar with me and my work. Um, and I, I found there's a power law of feedback distribution, right. Where like, there's like one person who like gives me like insane amounts of feedback and helps me like totally re-architect the entire piece and they do it for free. And it's often a total random stranger who's never helped me before. It just was one of the people who replied to me who happened to have some background in creative writing or whatever, and really helped me take it to the next level. But you never know who those people are going to be unless you ask broadly. And so I'm a big fan of that where like, I just tweet out, uh, say, Hey, I'm working on this thing. Let me know. And then I do that. And then once I do that and it's getting closer, then I'll pick individual people and in my network and say, so writing group first, then the random Twitter people. And then once I have something that I think is like 80, 90% there and feeling really, really, really good, but still not perfect um, or maybe perfect, but like, then I will DM or or, or email or, or message, uh, you know, uh, for example, like coworkers or investors or just friends of mine or random people that I just happen to be talking to recently. Um, and then I'll do that one at a time, get feedback address, get feedback address, get feedback address until I basically just have no more feedback. Like until there's like no, nothing left, no low hanging fruit or medium hanging fruit um, left in the article. And then that's, that's when I say, okay, I'm going to publish it on, you know, Tuesday or Thursday or whatever and decide on, on that. But that can take weeks, often does take weeks. I generally write my first drafts within a few hours and then a few weeks is really what it takes to edit. And I guess one other note on it is I write a lot of first drafts that never get published. Like through this process, I also often learn that it's not good enough for me to publish. Uh, So that also can happen. It's not like everything just has this process where it just gets better and better and better over time and then gets published. Often what happens is it gets, you know, better and better. And then I realize like, it's never actually going to get that good. Like there's, I sort of see the curve of the quality and I'm like, okay, this is not going to diverge, you know, into that area where I'm like, okay, this might be as good as reflecting on my fear to build a billion dollar company or no meetings, no deadlines, no full-time employees. Um, I've written about NFTs. I've written about crypto. I've written about raising money. I've written about privilege. I've written about whatever, like all sorts of different things. And I've written a bunch of fiction that no one has ever read. Um, and, but yeah, through this process of, of editing, I, I, I've realized like, okay, they're not there yet. Um, and so I have a very high bar, I think for, for publishing, uh, at least anything longer than a tweet. So, uh, and people have asked me all the time, they're like, well, why don't you publish it? Like it would help somebody or it would be good. But like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. I, I, I only want to publish things that like, you know, are really, 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 really good. Um, at this point in my life, um, as I mentioned, like my goal is to be, you know, a master of the English language and, Therefore, like the only thing worth publishing is something that was better than anything I would have been able to publish two years ago. And I just haven't, those just don't come around that often, right? Like very rarely do you have one of those, it's not just your ability to write, it's like your, some experience you had recently, something in the zeitgeist, a macro thing. Um, Like the future of work was a big thing with COVID, which is why no meetings, no deadlines, no full-time employees, I think resonated with so many people. And, you know, reflecting my field ability in our company came out after like Theranos, Uber, WeWork were all lambasted in the media right and so there's a lot of resistance to the kind of venture capital model which is not there today right and, and so um it's kind of a you know you you want to write assuming you're going to publish but also know that you might not i think that's and not feel like it's a failure it's not a failure that i haven't published any of these things it's just that they, they they're actually the opposite of failure because i've learned the most from them right like i learned so much from writing these pieces and trying to get it good and realizing okay my thesis on nfts is just not good it's just not that interesting. It's not that compelling. There's a couple things in there that I think are really interesting and good, and I can't stop thinking about them. So at some point, maybe they'll just go into a tweet, or maybe they'll work themselves out into a new article that I write about something else. Um, 
but like at some point they'll, the ideas are not dead, right? They're just, they just have to be packaged in the right form to reach the, the right people. Gotcha. Legion also mentioned once that uh, her bar for publishing like you is fairly high and there are many unpublished drafts, uh, drafts in her inbox. I heard that. Um, yeah. A quick one, you referenced uh, Naval sometime back. Have you always known Naval or did Naval organically stumble into your blog and then eventually invest in your company? And of course, I wanted to know whether you actually pitched to Naval or did he just support you because he resonated with the mission? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I, I, so, so the first time I met Naval, I think was 2011. Um, it was like a Saturday or something. I, I, I went up to San Francisco and basically we're looking for an iOS engineer for AngelList. Um, and this is how I met tons of people is like, I have skills that people want, um, like design and code are skills that many, many people want. And I have those skills. And so I met tons of people like Naval through that. And then when I started Gumroad, I pinged him. I think this is what happened. I could be wrong about the, the story, but what I think happened was I basically just said, Hey, you know, I'm starting a company. Uh, we met, you know, about this thing a while ago. Let me know if you want to talk. This is what, you know, I'm doing. Here's a URL, you know, I'm raising a million bucks. Um, let me know if you want to talk. And so we had coffee and I don't think it was like a formal pitch. He was, he was kind of like, yeah, I'm in, don't worry about it. Like, don't pitch me too hard. Um, this was right around crypto, Bitcoin becoming, you know, mainstream at that point. It was still 2011, so still pretty early, um, but at least mainstream in that kind of a tech community. And, um, and, and, and Gumroad fit very cleanly into that, right? This unbundling of the storefront and selling atomic microtransactional goods and sort of content and all these sorts of things also didn't happen exactly the way that we thought it was going to happen in, in Bitcoin, but, um, in crypto, but, um, that was kind of the thing. It was just kind of a pretty casual conversation, um, which I find is the best for pitching anyway. Like if it, if it feels too forced and it's tough uh, for me, at least, um, I, I just like having conversations with, with smart people and learning. Um, and that was it. I, mean, I think he wrote me, I don't know what it was, but like, you know, his median check size at the time. And then when I launched my rolling, I mean, he helped me kickstart the rolling fund and, and he's been very helpful with, you know, more recently, but that was literally basically it. it was just like this hour long coffee or something like that. And then we just, you know, I kept in touch over email and, and, um, and that was basically it up, but honestly, up until 2020, like up actually up until I would say 2019, which is when I published, you know, reflecting on my failure to build a billion dollar company was when, uh, I think many people in the Valley and many people I talked to before were like, Oh, wow, you're actually smart. And, you know, you haven't just disappeared off the face of the planet. Like many other people do quite common in the industry. Um, you know, uh, you're back and you have something to say and I want to listen, you know? Um, and so that's when I reconnected with Naval and there was clubhouse. So there was a lot of clubhouse conversations of COVID and so I've seen that a couple of times since, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of our, our relationship. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing it. And uh, Sahil, as we just conclude, I wanted to get some thoughts from uh, you on the future of the creator economy. We recently saw Gumroad 3.0 emerge, which looks wonderful. And uh, yeah. you've obviously shared some thoughts meandering on the third wave of the internet. So if you could just see, share how the future of work would look like in your own sense um, in the coming years or decades, that would be awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the simple one-liner is that Basically, technology will unbundle employment. And over time, employment will no longer be a bundled service in which you get healthcare benefits, perks, your identity, your salary, uh, your friends and family, potentially, like all these things that people expect work to do for them. Over time, work will do none of those things except get you money. And I think basically, just like what happened with Uber and Airbnb, where it basically turned these things into these kind of like spectrum of jobs, really gigs more than jobs and portfolios more than careers. Um, I think will happen to every other job in the world, including software engineering, including doctors, including law. It might take a long time, but effectively in 50 years, we might have everyone's a company of one. And, you know, there's kind of free market uh, for all these different components of what work and full-time employment traditionally got you. Right. I think that will happen in the next uh, 50 kind of years. And equity also, like in the Web 3.0 era, we've read that people will have equity community members. So in Gumroad, to some extent, you did provide the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, the beauty is you don't have to use crypto, right? Like this is all possible. <laughs> this is all possible and has been possible for hundreds of years or 100 plus years, right? You go public on the NASDAQ and boom, 
you can invest in Facebook, you can invest in Twitter, you can invest in every social company, internet company, you can invest in YouTube, you can invest in Pinterest, you can invest in Gumroad, you can invest in all these kinds of companies. Um, so crypto unlocks it for, for communities, but I actually think for companies, like the solutions have been around for a long period of time. Um, um, and yeah, like the, the great thing about the future work is that you don't have to know, you know like, I think crypto will evolve separately um, in its own way. Um, and all of these benefits will exist in web two, web one, you know, without anyone ever having to think about crypto. Awesome. Sahil, congratulations once again for writing a wonderful book. Um, what we'll do is that we'll share this podcast and masterclass to our entire community, link it to your book. Where can people go to find uh, your next piece of writing or perhaps the next book that might be in the works or your next article? Yeah, so my Twitter at SHL is the best place to go. That's basically where I will break all breaking news <laughs> about myself um, will be Twitter. My email list also exists, but I think Twitter is, is good enough. Awesome. Thanks so much, Sahil. We appreciate your time and hopefully we'll do this again. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Take care.